Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Dr. Laura Foran-Lewis, a nurse researcher and assistant professor at the University of Vermont College of Nursing and Health Sciences about the birth experiences of folks on the autism spectrum. We have wanted to discuss this area for quite some time and we love speaking with Dr. Hauser, someone you also know well, Dr. Lewis. So we're very excited to talk with you today. We also want to let our listeners know that we are undergoing some strategic changes to improve our listener experience and streamline our processes. We will no longer be offering our traditional show notes and will instead include takeaways, resources, and transcripts directly on our website. However, we would still love and appreciate your support, and you can find ways to support us on our website by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com and clicking the Support Us tab. Also, if you missed our big news, nurses can now earn CE for listening to the WCH podcast. Just check out mycehq.com or download the CEHQ app, or you can visit our website, again, www.womancenteredhealth.com to learn more. Hi, Dr. Lewis. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. So the first question we always ask our guests is if you can share with our listeners a little bit of details about your background. Yeah, of course. So obviously, I'm a nurse. My clinical background is actually in oncology. So very far away from what I'm researching today. But I was in a PhD program, I was actually working on research about uh, dementia at the end of life, completely different than this. And while I was in my program, I had a family member who found out they were autistic. And this was an adult person, honestly, looked nothing like the way I envisioned autism would look. And so being a researcher, I went right to the literature and was trying to find out more about just autistic adult experiences, if it was common to find out that you were autistic as an adult. And I found almost nothing at that time. And so it was kind of, in some ways, a researcher's dream to find an area where you know nothing. And so I switched gears completely and started researching autism in adulthood. And that's what I've been doing ever since, completely transitioned my program of research. So most of my work is qualitative. And so I look a lot at autistic people's experiences, their lived experiences, a lot of uh, social relationship experiences and identity formation. I also do just want to have a disclaimer on this podcast that I don't actually work in women's health or labor and delivery. I have no background in that area at all, but I have done some research, obviously, that overlaps birthing experiences and autism. Yeah, thank you for that. And, you know, I don't think you're alone as a guest on here. We've had so many guests. Yeah, because it really, we like to include all people, right? Um, so all all issues <laughs> included as well. So the next question we always ask our guest, which is our favorite question, is what informs your perspective? In other words, why do you do what you do? And what is most valuable to you? I love this question, especially as a qualitative researcher. I feel like so much of who I am influences the way that I see the world and interpret data and what I choose to study. So as I mentioned, I started 
researching autism after having a family member who identified as autistic. So I started out trying to better understand that person and our relationship and how to connect. And what I found was that studying autism actually made me better at understanding all of my relationships. It's definitely made me more empathetic, better able to relate to other people, better understanding of my own brain. I'm also a mom. I have three kids. They're all under the age of five, so they're a party and a half. But I think that understanding autism has just made me a better mom. It's made me better able to understand their needs and relate to them. The other piece of this is that I think recognizing that I I was trained as a nurse, I was trained to understand autism as a disorder. I was trained to see it as autism spectrum disorder. I was taught that the best way to help support autistic people was to find ways to help treat and intervene. And basically, most of these focus on ways to help autistic people not be autistic. And help really belongs in air quotes there. But over time, I've had a lot of really great teachers, especially autistic people themselves, who've helped me understand the importance of autism and other forms of neurodivergence as a really beneficial form of human diversity, that we all think and feel and process things differently. We all communicate differently. And so I've definitely shifted away from that medical model approach to looking at autism and much more towards that social model of disability. I know that you already talked about this in your podcast with Dr. Hauser, but basically looking at disability as being a mismatch between a person's needs and their social and physical environment. And when we can lessen barriers in people's environments, we can decrease disability and we can improve people's ability to participate meaningfully in their own lives. I think one other thing I should say just along those lines is that I do intentionally use the term autistic people instead of person with autism. This is goes along with that social model of disability. There's been a lot of research lately that shows that this language is preferred by many autistic people. And it's the language that's endorsed by a lot of self-advocacy groups for autistic people. So I know it's not everybody's preference, but that's the language that I choose to use when talking about autism. I really appreciate you saying that. We Nicole and I just had this conversation before you got on because I was... Um, texting with a friend yesterday and who is a speech language pathologist, but she said that we're, yeah, that people with autism is now kind of turning back and saying, yeah, it's autistic child or autistic person. Um, And so I have been kind of trying to use that first person, first language, but it, yeah, not everyone is really on board with that or is going a different direction. So thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. And it's, I think what's really challenging is it's not only, you know, what people prefer, it's that they view the alternative as offensive. I've had people in my study say that saying person with autism to them was akin to using a racial slur. And I've had studies that have actually been boycotted online because I've used person first language. People view it almost as a red flag that, uh, that you're not a, a, good researcher for them to trust. It's, I I think the idea there is that we're trying to separate autism from the person that we're trying to say, you're not just autism, you're more than that. And what people are really coming back and saying is, I'm happy to be autistic. It's part of my identity. It's something I embrace. And I don't want you or need you to try and separate it from who I am. Yeah, that's really thoughtful. And, and I wonder too now, With some of our previous episodes, I mean, even just the intersex one, which I don't even think is out yet, saying like people with intersex traits, I haven't personally heard if that community would prefer to 
you know, or want people to say intersex people. But I wonder about that trajectory for other communities. Yeah. And I think the autism movement has really followed, uh, I think, a lot of the deaf movement who really led the way on deaf culture and understanding this as being part of people's identity. I think where it gets really difficult is that we also have a lot of parents who feel very strongly that we are taking something away from their child by calling them an autistic child. They, they feel very strongly that that the identity first language is offensive. And so what I've run into is that whichever language I choose to use, it does seem that we're kind of offending one group of stakeholders. Personally, I've found that I'd rather align with the people who have the lived experience than, than people who care about those people, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. So questions before we even started questions. So go ahead. I know I'm already like, okay, we probably need to evaluate our questions and be careful how we ask as well, because I'm already learning things. Thank you so much for that. Um, I also just want to say that I appreciate you looping in the discussion of how we are trained. I think that was a really great point to make. So thank you for that. Another term that's sort of seen as um, a pretty neutral term is to say on the autism spectrum. And that seems to get the most endorsement from both the parent group and the, the people themselves. So sometimes in a mixed audience, I'll choose to use that terminology instead. Okay, so as we said today, we're going to talk about the birth experiences of folks on the autism spectrum. So let's jump right in. First off, congratulations on winning the 2022 Best of the Journal of Obstetrics, Gynecologic, and Neonatal Nursing Journal Award for this study. We really enjoyed reading all about the study, and we will be sure to include a link to it on our website. But before we get into the study details, can you share with our listeners where the idea for this study came from? Because it's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I just had the pleasure of getting to go to the A1 convention in Colorado, and it was it was a blast. So I've been, like I said, I've been studying autistic people's experiences for a while now. And one of the things that's come from that is understanding that autism affects a lot of people's sensory experiences. So a lot of autistic people are really sensitive to things like lights or sounds or even like patterns on a carpet. And what a lot of people describe is that they they take in all of the sensory information at the same time. And so it really overloads their brain and it makes it really hard to take in other input that are coming in. So like someone standing in front of you talking can be hard to hear what they're saying and process the information they're sharing because you're very distracted by all these other input that are coming in. So when I had my own baby, I, I was really amazed at how my own brain responded to that experience. I found that I was processing senses really differently than, than the way I typically process senses. And I, I'm not autistic that I'm aware of, but I was really intrigued by this whole experience of how our brains process sensory input, especially when we're under this tremendous physical and emotional and all kinds of stress. So after that experience, I really started to wonder, what is it like for autistic people to go through this experience where, where you do have all these other sensory input coming in at the same time that you're, that you're trying to accomplish something really important? So that was sort of where the idea came from. So Dr. Lewis, I thought you had also mentioned that you do have engagement with the community, and perhaps this is also something that arose from them as well. Yeah, so thank you so much for bringing that up. So a lot of the work that I do is participatory action research. And actually, as of January, I've committed that all of the work that I'm doing moving forward um, includes autistic people on my research team. So 
Dr. Hauser is a, a person who is a fabulous contributor to a lot of the work I do and gives me a lot of feedback and guidance and support in helping shape the research that I conduct um, and really point out directions that we need to go. So this study in particular didn't come from the autistic community members that I work with, but certainly those have been voices that I've been engaged with and listening to. And I do a lot of looking on social media and blogs and and all kinds of things that autistic people are creating content constantly about their experiences. So definitely those are things that shape future directions for the research that I'm doing. And I, I think a really, really critical way that we decide what direction to take our research and make sure that it is impactful and meaningful to the, the people that we're, that we're trying to support when we go about doing these kinds of studies. So you talked to already about the sensory processing and how autistic people that are, I don't know, more sensitive to some of those things like lights and noises and, and just everything in our environment. So how is that relevant to the birthing experience exactly? Yeah, so the, I think birth is like a, a sensory bomb, if you will. It's, I think you've got sounds and you've got lights and smells of, you know, you, you can hear other people giving birth. And then you've got all that tactile sim- stimulation of people doing exams and touching you in places that you may not be used to strangers touching you. You've got, you know, the feeling of the gown on your body. Temperature is a huge one. And now you've got you know, you're often exposed. And and now you've got this temperature that you don't have any way to regulate monitors being on your body. And on top of all these external stimuli, you also have the internal sensation of a baby being in you that, you know, you've kind of grown accustomed to in some ways over nine months, but that's still a new sensory input that people are processing. So when you're taking all of that in at the same time, for a lot of people, it, it can it can be so overwhelming that they experience what people often describe as a, sh- a shutdown. So this inability to process information or to communicate with other people, it can also just lead to dissociation, you know, just leaving that body behind, basically, as a means of trying to escape all the sensory input. The other piece is that birth is really full of social inputs as well. You have people who are coming and going in the room. And when we look at the defining characteristics of autism, social communication is a really big part of that. So the way that people communicate, the way that they process social interactions and and prefer to engage socially. And now you've got the space that you have no control over. And you've got people coming in and out of that space and people who you know, I remember my own birth an anesthesiologist coming in and trying to make a joke. And I was like, at a in the zone moment where I was just trying to breathe. And I'm like, am I supposed to laugh at this? Like, go away. I had no interest in that joke. And so you've got this really overwhelming experience going on. And that's on top of a, a baseline where you're hypersensitive to a lot of that input. I think the other thing to really keep in mind here is that A lot of autistic people, and especially women, are really skilled at masking their autistic traits. So basically, that means being able to to put on a front so that other people can't detect um, the ways that they're actually thinking and processing and feeling. A lot of people describe this as a survival mechanism. So for example, making eye contact, I think providers a lot of the time think, oh, this, this person makes eye contact, they engage in small talk, they don't even think about autism. But in reality, just because somebody's making eye contact, just because they're engaging in small talk, has nothing to do with how they're thinking, processing, feeling. So I think it's really important to recognize that there may not be any outward signs that somebody is autistic. And the important thing to keep in mind here is that 
that masking behavior, it's exhausting. It's linked to depression. It's linked to suicide. We know that it's not safe or healthy for people to put on this non-autistic mask that they feel like they have to wear. And what the research is showing is that there's kind of becomes this division between the true self and the performed self that creates almost an identity crisis for people. So I think recognizing that just because somebody appears a certain way, it really means nothing. Um, and the other thing is that a lot of the time when people mask and then they're under this extreme stress, that mask comes off sometimes for the first time. And so they may not really know how to, they, they may not be familiar with how to process any of what they're feeling right now. And it, it may be a really overwhelming experience for them to cope with taking the mask off and being especially vulnerable to these strangers who are there to take care of them. You know, that sort of reminded me of, what am I thinking of, Nicole, I'm, the body dysmorphia that, is that what, is that the term I'm thinking? Where, that trans people, what am I thinking of? Passing happens a lot. People talk about passing and masking very similarly. Yeah, exactly. Passing, passing and masking. Yeah, like that is that a lot of the depression and suicidal ideations that trans people have is from that constant having to mask or pass um, and having that identity uh, crisis within themselves. So that really that really makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. When you say it like that. Yeah. And it's it's just it's obviously a very it's exhausting. It's it's this constant, you know, wearing wearing something that isn't your authentic self is it's harmful. I think we can all relate to the idea that that would be harmful, whether we personally have experienced that or not. Exactly. And you had mentioned the research. So let's talk about your research. And can you talk more about or share with us a little bit more about the research you did, including your sample and the methods? Absolutely. So this was a study where we recruited from social media groups, groups on Facebook and Reddit. We got permission from site moderators, obviously, first, and then posted recruitment notices in those groups. We invited anybody to participate who was 18 or older, and anybody who self-identified as autistic and had experienced childbirth. So self-identifying as autistic, I know, can be seen as maybe not being as rigorous as if we had only included people who were formally diagnosed. But my own previous work and um, a lot of other people's work as well has shown that there are a lot more people nowadays identifying as autistic in adulthood. And diagnosis is really difficult for a lot of adults to actually access. It's financially inaccessible. There aren't a lot of specialists who are who are willing to diagnose adults in the first place and then who actually understand how autism can present in autistic adults. So, and then even for people who are able to find those specialists, there are a lot of barriers to just accessing care in general and being able to navigate the system to be able to get that diagnosis. So we decided to include anybody who self-identified as autistic, whether or not they were formally diagnosed. And we used a, like a survey style interview process. So a lot of research has shown that that face-to-face communication can be really stressful for a lot of autistic people. And that real-time pressure of having to respond as I'm asking you a question can, it, it can basically make it people feel less control over their communication, and it can decrease their comprehension of information. So instead, we choose, um, in this study, we chose to do asynchronous and written communication. So basically, we sent a survey link to people that had big open ended questions, they responded, and then we asked them to provide an email address. And then we didn't communicate with them on email because of IRB and wanting to protect their security over email. But 
what we did is we emailed them individual survey links that had follow-up questions on the survey. So we had something like 20-something individual survey links for our participants that we would just send them their own link to their questions. So what we asked people in the initial survey was to tell us their birth story, tell it from whatever they considered the beginning to whatever they considered the end. And we got a lot of great responses. Um, We ended up with 16 participants who told us 19 different stories. So three of them told us about two different birth stories. And then we analyzed those using a method called narrative analysis. We specifically used an approach developed by Kenneth Burke. So basically, once we had those birth stories, we broke them into scenes of the story, almost like you would think about acts in a play. And then for each of those scenes, we identified five elements within the story. So Burke calls this the dramatistic pentad. So there's the act, that's what's happening. There's the scene, that's the background or the environment to the act. Then you have the agent, that's the person who's performing the act. The agency, that's the approach to performing the act. And then the purpose or why the act occurred. So basically the who, what, when, where, why, and how of the story. And then we took each of those elements and we juxtaposed them to, like compared them to each other. So we wanted to see if there were any mismatches among the elements. So anywhere there's a mismatch, we call trouble. And basically, like the example I like to use is if you think about like wearing a bathing suit, that's an act. And if you do that at a beach or a scene, you're fine. But if you do the same act and you wear a bathing suit and you go out, let's say, in a snowstorm as your scene, there's obviously going to be some trouble there. It's not really a great decision to wear a bathing suit in a snowstorm. So we're looking for areas where there was a mismatch between any two of those elements. The great part about this method is it really lets us see the whole story together. So for example, if there was a point of tension early on in the story, and then it caused conflict later on in the story, so like, you know, the patient wanted something and the nurse refused, and then the patient felt that they lost trust with that nurse. And then way later on in the story, they didn't want to listen to the nurse because they didn't trust the nurse anymore. We could pick up on how that played out throughout the story. So all in all, we had, as I said, 16 participants And the average age of our participants at time of participation was 36 and a half years. Average average age at the time they gave birth was about 27 years. All of our participants identified as women. Most were white. There were 14 out of 16 who were white. Most came from the United States, United Kingdom, New Zealand. And most talked about a first birth experience. That was 14 of the 19 were describing their first birth. And 14 of the 19 described a vaginal birth experience. One section I think was most interesting about the sample is that of the 16 participants, five of those 16 were aware that they were autistic at the time they gave birth, which means 11 of them were not. And that has a lot of implications for providers who, you know, obviously a provider would not know if this person's not autistic if they don't know themselves and obviously aren't disclosing that. And what I think is most interesting is that of the five who knew that they were autistic, two did not disclose that to the healthcare team. So if you were to interview the providers who cared for these patients, only three of these and these 19 stories actually knew they were caring for an autistic patient. My like researcher soul is loving this. So our Nicole and I's one of our mentors, our, I don't know, favorite teacher or most mind-blowing teacher, uh, did narrative analysis and and so we love hearing about this stuff and just the asynchronous online interviewing that's super awesome thank you because i i feel like we're always sort of taught like a face-to-face interview is like the gold standard and anything else is not as rigorous and even 
even now, like with with COVID, like those those conversations aren't really happening anymore. Yeah. So, um, and I know, like, just even me personally, I love having time to think. Yeah. Through, um, I'm a. I call myself a slow processor, so I love time to think my think through my answers to things. So I can really appreciate that as a as a great method. Yeah, and I think what's been really cool for me to see is now working with autistic partners as co researchers. One thing that they're really pushing for for us to start doing as we move forward is multimodal interviewing. So offering options. You know, I I think Dr. Hauser talked a lot about not having a default and having options. So looking at ways that people can choose to participate in a face-to-face or a Zoom interview, or they can do it in writing, or we can have those declarative type statements so they can respond, not just to open-ended questions, which can be really overwhelming for a lot of people to process and respond to. So I think it is sort of a a newer direction that that I'm personally hoping to see my own research go. And, and I'd love to see others do that too. And there, there's kind of that battle between, you know, does it take away from the research because you're doing things not consistently across the board? And in other ways, are you adding to the research by triangulating your data collection? So I think there are definitely pros and cons to consider with, with any approach. But for me, thinking it through any way that we can better engage with the participants and get them to share a response in a way that is best for them, I think is a win. I'm going to get on my little nursing soapbox research, nursing research soapbox for a minute. And I am just so in love with everything you're saying, because as nurses, we should be responding to the needs of our community. And our community should be who dictates the research that we are doing and how we are doing it. And I love that what you're doing is challenging this like, oh, you should do a double-blinded RCT is the gold standard or in-person's the gold standard. And it's like, when do we recognize that maybe the gold standard is not, is actually crippling what our knowledge and what we know and what we are gaining from these. And so snaps all around to you for challenging that and really embracing and including the community. I think all nursing needs to do this direction and that's my soapbox. Thank you. Thank you. Snaps right back at you. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to what you said about rigorous and that argument, I think whatever is the most rigorous is the way that you can get the best data from your research participant. And that is from how they decide they want to give you that data, in my opinion. (laughs) So, okay. So, Now let's talk about what you found in your research. So can you share with us some of the findings? Yeah. So the, I think the main finding by far was that most of the areas where we found this trouble or the mismatch between two elements in the story, they came from a mismatch between the act. So what was happening and the agency or how that act was happening. So I think we do a lot of things in in healthcare in general. And sometimes if we do them in a way that's perceived as uncaring, or if people don't know why we're doing them, or if they don't have all the information, they they can be perceived as as almost abusive, I would say. And so what we found in in this study was that a lot of people were talking about acts that they perceived as uncaring. And I would bet a lot of money that if we interviewed the people who were caring for them, that they were not uncaring people, that they were not trying to come across as uncaring, that they were using 
things that they've been trained to do as being therapeutic, but the way that those actions and the way that they were carried out were perceived was really troubling and traumatic for the participants in this study. So overall, people felt that their concerns were often minimized. They felt their wishes were ignored, and they felt they didn't receive adequate information about what was happening to them, to their bodies, to their babies. So this was especially a a dominant theme when people talked about their pain. So I have a quote from a participant here. She said, no one but my partner believed because I didn't scream and cry. I did keep explaining to the surgeon and anesthetist exactly what I could feel happening, but they kept insisting that it was all in my imagination. And if I could really feel it, I wouldn't be able to lay there talking to them. I'd be screaming. They kept insisting that until my blood pressure started to go through the roof. I passed out from the pain. And when I came to, they were panicking and had a mask over my face, giving me a general anesthetic. So a lot of participants shared really similar stories to this. And one of the things that I think was interesting that came out of this is that when these individuals described themselves, they, they would almost backtrack and say, well, I guess part of it was that I have a really flat affect when I'm in pain, or I don't normally scream when I'm in pain, or I don't normally cry. And because they're, you know, what we consider the objective signs of pain were missing, that, you know, we are trained as providers to, to measure those signs, to look for those things. And so when these individuals didn't have them, they really weren't believed. And so I think it's really critical for anyone caring for anybody, whether they're neurodivergent or not, that we really need to believe people's reports of pain, which feels like day one of nursing school, that pain is what the patient says it is. But I think when it comes to practically carrying that out, sometimes we, we miss the boat a little bit. So recognizing that physical signs of pain might not be a good indicator, especially in this population. A lot of people also talked about not being assessed when they asked to be checked. They talked about being touched without warning, having procedures like membrane sweeps or rupture of membranes without their consent. Some also shared that their healthcare team made jokes that were perceived as cruel or inappropriate for the situation. Many described, they used the words violated and powerless is how they felt in their birth experiences. And as a result of this, the the kind of downstream effect is that later on in their stories, many of them refused medically indicated procedures and left the hospital against medical advice. So obviously, these things have bigger impacts than just how that person felt or how they just walked away and perceived their birth experience. You know, these these are pretty big picture things. Another major finding was an imbalance between the scene, so the environment, and the agent. So in this case, the, the birthing person, so that the, the environment was poorly matched to their needs. Many described that that sensory stuff that we had already talked about. Dissociation during childbirth was really common. And a lot felt that they just weren't able to communicate with their team because they were so sensory overloaded. Others felt that they had these. So part of, you know, that masking picture, a coping mechanism that a lot of people do is they'll rehearse these kind of common phrases that we use a lot of the time. And so they can kind of spit them out without thinking. So A lot of these participants talked about following the script or just trying to say the right thing at the right time. They described just spitting out these lines to try and answer questions, but they didn't reflect how they honestly were experiencing their childbirth. So kind of trying to appease people instead of being authentic as as just sort of a rote response. And I have have kind of a longer quote here, but I think it really captures this this whole idea of the, the sensory experience. So this is an individual who was, she described her birth as traumatizing, and she experienced a cesarean section. So she said, 
If you can imagine the most frightening, dreadful, and absolutely helpless feeling of being pinned to a small, cold table while you watch a group of people you've never met before, assist your doctor in cutting open your flesh and watching them peel back your muscle and fat and continue to cut further past the uterine uterine lining. I watched the whole procedure like a movie and the large mirrored light that hung from the ceiling above my head. I couldn't look away. I was frigid, freezing, and slipping in and out of consciousness. I remember holding a nurse's hand on my right and my boyfriend's on my left. I remember aggressively forcing back the vomit and tried and failed to form words and ask for a barf pail. I think the perception and lived experience of my son's birth was definitely made worse by autism, specifically sensory processing difficulties. The cut of the scalpel, the touch of the doctor's cold hands, the noises I kept hearing. In short, it was like a no good worst case version of what every day is like living on the autism spectrum with ridiculous sensory sensitivities. And if I can just add a little bit more to what she had to say at the end of her story, she said, when I think back to the memories of this birth, it almost rips my heart out because after I'd been stitched up and sent out of the recovery area, I distinctly remember not wanting to touch, hold, or even look at my baby, not because I didn't love him or want to hold him, but I was so disgusted at the events that had just played out in the room. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. Just just yeah, I'm feeling a little gut yeah. punched and shattered over here. Yeah. yeah. And then to know on top of that, that sh- that she is not the only one by far who feels that way. And and we know just from other birthing stories that traumatic births are common in all populations, but to understand if you have the sensory processing hypersensitivity, how, you know, that just adds an additional big additional layer onto it. And it's just really devastating, especially for that, that new, new mom uh, or, and that new baby. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that really, I think surprised me about these findings is that, Previous research that has looked at autistic parenting, there's not a lot out there, but what we have looked at, we've basically found that, you know, this detachment between the birthing person and the baby is, we've, we've just decided that that's part of the autism picture. And I think one of the big aha moments for me was, you know, that it is parallel with what we see in traumatic childbirth of anybody who gives birth. And so are we probably, I think, um, just looking at a situation where we have a population who is way, way at high risk of being traumatized during their delivery. And then looking at the aftermath is is actually aftermath of trauma. And instead, we're saying, well, look at this, this autistic parent and this baby, they haven't bonded well. When really, I'm wondering at the end of this study, if what we're seeing are effects of trauma and not related to autism at all. Are you planning another study on that? That would be fascinating. I would I would love to. It's it's not uh, on the radar at the moment, but it's definitely <laughs> in the back of my mind as kind of a, a next step from this study. And, you know, too, the whole time you were talking, and this may be fresh on my mind because I was just working on the transcripts this morning, is trauma-informed care. And so much of what you're saying, you know, consent for or lack of consent for every contact if you had consent for every contact if you believed what the birthing person was saying you know all these central tenets of trauma-informed care how much that could have changed these experiences and how 
that is just a, a really a lens that we should be using for everyone as well. And as I mean, I thinking about my own experience as oh, my little guy is tripping up here. My own C-section. I mean, there was stuff you were saying. Where I was like, yeah, I th- yes, to that is how that felt, and it is terrifying when you go into those emergent situations and it to have no control and it yes, yes to all of that. Yeah, and I think when we're looking at the the outcomes and what we should be doing specifically for these autistic patients, the reality is that most of them don't know that they're autistic during that childbirth experience in many cases. So any approach that we can use across the board that reduces trauma is is going to improve care for everybody, especially since we can't just pinpoint, you know, these these particular patients and say this is how we should do it. I think it's part of that universal design, that trauma-informed care, the ways that we need to handle every patient every time. So you kind of told us, you know, that you were surprised by that finding about the, you know, the childbirth and the detachment and then how that might relate to or be associated with child rearing. Are there any other findings that surprised you and why? I I think the biggest surprise was it was the level of trauma, I think. So I've, I've done some previous research. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Cheryl Beck and her work at all, but her work is mostly on um, post-traumatic stress among people after they give birth. And she's looked a lot at postpartum depression, but a, a lot on post-traumatic stress. And when I was a graduate student, she was my advisor. So I happened to work on some of her research, even though it was outside of my area. So I had read stories of traumatic childbirth before. And I found that a a lot of these pieces of this story, the stories I was hearing, were familiar with stories I had read before from people's experiences with traumatic childbirth, autistic or not. But I think what really surprised me here was that piece about the downstream impacts of the physical care. I think I was more familiar with parenting and postpartum depression and cognitive fog and these kind of things that we see, you know, in, in the early parenting stage. I, I wasn't expecting to see people who refused to have their membranes ruptured when the, you know, when the provider said it was necessary. I wasn't expecting people to take their baby and leave immediately after having the baby. I think those are the things that, that more surprised me was, was the level of the trauma experienced and the immediate impact of that trauma. I have another short quote here. Somebody was describing why they refused a, a medical procedure. And they said, I did not want these people who clearly were not taking me seriously to touch me and violate my space because I did not trust them at this point to listen to me if I became uncomfortable. And I think that idea of these kind of early on pieces that would seem innocuous. And and if, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't been a labor and delivery nurse, but I've been a nurse in other settings and I know how things can go and how sometimes you're busy and sometimes you feel that the patient's request is unreasonable. And sometimes you make a joke that, you're just trying to lighten the mood and you realize that wasn't really the right joke for that moment or those kind of things can happen. But I think to see how those things that we perceive sometimes as being so small really built up for these women in these stories and really had these really powerful, you know, clinical implications downstream. That was what surprised me, I think. Well, and I think as nurses too, often we take our own knowledge for granted And we kind of make these shortcuts where we say, oh, you're a new mom. There's no way you're progressing that fast. You know, those types of things. And, and I know, you know, and you had talked about 
not feeling like they had enough education about what was happening. The only reason I had the education of what was happening was one, I was a nurse, but two, I had spent some time doing labor and delivery nursing. And so I too was taking things for granted. And uh, with my third one, he was having late D cells and my husband, you know, so they're, and they're using that language. Like there's some late D cells. We're getting concerned. My husband doesn't know what late D cells mean and what that could indicate. So then I, as the person in labor is explaining to my husband what late D cells mean and what could be causing that. And so I think a lot of times, you know, as nurses, we do need to check ourselves. And although we take this information for granted, really, this is not stuff that the average individual just knows. Absolutely. And one story that has stood out to me since I read it, it, this was in one of Cheryl Beck's studies that that I was reading. And it was a story where they were using a a vacuum to do a vacuum extraction and the vacuum came off the baby's head. And somebody in the room said it came off. And the mother heard the pop and she felt the pop and she perceived that her baby's head had come off. And so that's an, an like it, it's a nothing line to the provider who's they're just talking amongst themselves and you know about the situation. But I can't imagine being the person in the bed who has no other information than pop it came off. And I mean, oh I can see the trauma building there. I, that would not be yeah. easy to get over. No. And I think so much of it is just that checking ourselves and that any line said in the room is to the patient too, you know, that we need to remember that patient is an audience to anything we say, whether it's a joke or comment about our weekend or just a comment about how delivery is going, but they can hear it all. Yeah. Well, speaking of communication and things we say, how do or how can your findings relate to how clinicians communicate with folks on the autism spectrum? Yeah, I think this is it reminds me of a lot of the conversations that we've been having already is that we really don't know when people are neurodivergent, you know, either because they don't tell us or because they themselves don't know. And we do, we estimate that one in five people is neurodivergent. So, you know, when we look at the fact that in this study, five knew and two of the five, that's 40% of the people who knew didn't disclose it. That says a lot. And I know that's a small number, but that says a lot. And previous research does show that autistic people are afraid of being seen as unfit parents if they disclose this information. Stigma and discrimination are alive and well. So I think really creating that non-judgmental, safe space for people to tell us this information and ensuring them that they will be safe in sharing this with us is really important. And I think the other thing to consider is universal screening for these kind of things, particularly because we know that we may not be picking up on these outward signs that we need to be asking people if they self-identify, whether they self-identify or they've been formally diagnosed or whatever that picture looks like. And I think it's it's bigger than just autism. It's, it's really getting at how we can tailor their birth experience to their preferences and to their needs from a sensory perspective, from an emotional perspective, from a physical perspective. But really asking those questions and getting that information. I also think about that. The, I think the key takeaways here are really, they're, they're pretty obvious. I think be non-judgmental and listen, ask people before you touch them, ask people what their preferences are, and then do that. 
And if you can't, for some reason, explain why you can't do that to them. And I think most of all is believe people like when, when they're telling us something, listen, and those sound like the basics of care for anybody. But I think those are the kind of little things that that actually can make a really significant clinical impact. Those are the themes of our of every episode. <laughs> I was gonna say, doesn't this also sound a lot like the exact same things for maternal mortality, or really almost every other episode that we talk about? <laughs> 100%. Don't judge. Ask for consent. Yes. Or get consent. Listen. Yeah. Ask for your preferences. Listen, mm-hmm. but also inform. <laughs> Yeah, there you have it. If you just do those things, your patients will be much happier (laughs) and less traumatized. Mm. So you kind of had those like key takeaways that we just went over. Do you have any, do you want to share a main message from your research that you want providers to take away from? Yeah, I, I actually, in thinking about this, it's, I think my main takeaway that I want people to take is not actually even from this study. It's, but it's the idea that in general, I think we need to shift the way that we think about autism. I think we need to get away from this really stereotyped picture of autism that we, that we kind of are trained to recognize and we, we kind of ignore anything outside of that. And I think realizing that autism often doesn't look the way we think it does. Something that always stands out to me is like a, I, I like to think of the example of how we came to understand heart attacks. And so when we first were looking at heart attacks, we were looking at things like chest pain and, you know, left arm pain. And we were really looking at very stereotypical male symptoms of a heart attack. And then we came to realize all these other things like GI upset and things that women are more likely to experience when they're having a heart attack. And I think we're going through, and I kind of hope we're going through something similar in autism where we've really stereotyped a picture and we've missed a huge piece of it. And I think broadening our understanding opens up people to really understand themselves better. And I I think it helps us understand our patients better. And I think the other key thing is really just trusting our patients as experts on their own bodies and taking their concerns seriously. That's, it can be the difference between patients accepting treatment and refusing treatment, whether we take the time to listen and explain and validate. Yes to all of that. And This, I think, also segues nicely into our next question, and we have thrown this word out there a little bit, but can you tell us about universal design for healthcare and how this would improve birthing experiences for folks on the autism spectrum? Yeah, great. Thank you. So I know Dr. Hauser already talked about this a bit on your previous podcast, but um, really when we're thinking about universal design for healthcare, we're thinking about having no default. So instead of there being that we normally do it this way, but if you need it that way, we can do it that way. Instead, you say we can do it this way or that way, which would you prefer? And sort of treating every situation with those options whenever they're available and trying to really identify the, the times that we have a default, but don't recognize that we have a default. So I, I'm thinking about like my own birth experiences I would not have wanted somebody to come in and ask me every time they were to touch me. I didn't want to communicate. I wanted to block out everything and you can do whatever you want to my body. I don't want to talk to you right now. But a lot of other people have the exact opposite experience where I'm, please don't touch me. You need to ask. That's, that's just how it is. So I think coming in and saying we can do it this way or we can do it that way, which do you prefer with every step in that process can be a a really helpful approach. 
Another one that comes to mind is something like looking at different birthing positions. So my perception is that we have kind of the standard. And then if you request something else, we can do something else. And universal design for healthcare would be to take away the standard and just ask people, what is your preferred birthing position instead of do you have a different position you'd like? So kind of that idea of taking away that special request and making it just be the norm that people can choose what option meets their needs best. So I think this can sound really burdensome when you think about practically implementing it when you're busy enough as it as you are. And But I think it's time for us to start getting creative about the ways that we ask these questions and gather this information and then share this information really broadly with anybody who's going to be interacting with that patient. Um, so like having a standardized form that asks about these kind of preferences and then posting that in the patient's room where anybody who's walking in can quickly scan and see these are the preferences. This is how to work with this patient within their needs at this time. Obviously, being in the hospital, giving birth, these things are stressful enough without having strangers coming in with no idea how you prefer to interact. So that's going to get me on the bandwagon. I feel like we haven't talked about this in a long time, but the birth plan and so a lot of that, I think, I think like the traditional birth plan is like things like, you know, I want an epidural or I don't, or I want maybe birthing positions, but I want the cord clamped or, you know, I want it to wait one minute or to stop beating. So we kind of think about those things, but I think that is an, is a powerful thing to be able to help patients put those kind of things like your preferred birthing position lighting uh how do you want me to talk to you how you know and that's a birth plan but we as clinicians have this kind of nasty stigma around people with a birth plan so I'm just going to say that we need to we need to be open minded about this birth plan. We need to share the birth plan. We need to get everybody on the team with the birth plan. Well, it's funny you say that because I I was just going to say the whole time you were talking, Stephanie, and right before you started talking, I was going to say it sounds like we need a redesign of the birth plan, and maybe that's a new movement we need to start is redesigning the birth plan. So that was actually what I was, we're like on the same wavelength here. My question to you, so I don't work in labor and delivery. When I think about a birth plan, I think about like somebody wrote a novel and they're bringing it in and handing it to you at a time when they need like care right now. And you're like, well, great. I'll sit down and read this and then care. Like I'm, I'm thinking this, like, again, not my area, but I'm picturing if we could have like a form that's pretty quick of like boxes that it's not just that it's quick to fill out. It's that it's quick to read that you walk in the room and you can see these preferences real clear. And then you're done with it, that that would be more helpful than what, what I thought about as a birth plan, but I might have just not know what a regular birth plan looks like. No. And the, I mean, in my experience, it's been a long time and I never worked in a labor and de delivery. I worked on the ambulatory side. So I would often explain to patients like what to put into a birth plan. And then I would hear from the L&D nurses, oh, that's not what we want in a birth plan. So the patient would bring in a birth plan and then nobody would like it. So I, I do appreciate that too. Like it is for the patient, but it needs to be feasible for the clinicians to be able to act on it, which is partly like making it 
somewhat succinct and that kind of thing. And I think it's like, that's the other thing is I don't think there's like a universal design of a birth plan. Like everybody's just kind of putting in their own things. Like you can look up online, but you could also write a novel. You could have a checklist. You know, everybody kind of does a different thing or they don't have one at all. I think what I just heard is we have our next project. <laughs> yes. Go. <laughs> so let's talk about, let's talk to maybe our listeners who don't identify as clinicians, especially maybe we have some folks who are neurodivergent or are autistic. So um, what would you like to share with those folks about giving birth? Yeah, I'm glad to have this question because I know a lot of this has focused on really negative experiences. And the last thing that I would want this study to do would be to scare neurodivergent folks away from having kids who are thinking about having kids. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to highlight some of the things that that folks did find helpful that, that they were able to do to self-advocate or self-protect from some of these negative experiences. So I think, first of all, obviously, communication has been a major theme here. Communicating with the healthcare team is, is really critical. And, and having that trusting relationship, if at all possible, you know, where ideally you can share with your team that you are autistic or that you think you're autistic. And keeping in mind that providers often have a very limited understanding of what autism is, just saying that I think I'm autistic or I'm autistic is probably not going to be enough to clue them into what your needs really are going to be during that childbirth experience or that pregnancy experience or, or breast or chest feeding, whatever that might be. So really looking at asking and, and offering that information about how you tend to express pain, what you tend to experience when you become overwhelmed, how somebody around you might be able to tell if you're becoming really overwhelmed. You might share what you find most and least helpful when you do become overwhelmed. What's, what is a good approach and what is really not helpful if, if they were to do that? And the more you can talk through these things starting early on in your care, I, I would think the better position you're going to be in with that provider when, when the time comes to give birth. Another thing that I would highly recommend is that the written birth plan. But not only that, I, I think those written information and those early conversations with the provider can be really helpful, but things change and things happen and things can be very unexpected and kind of having that in your mind that, that things might not go according to the plan, but also having a person in the room that you trust, that knows your preferences, that you've talked through these situations with, who can advocate in the moment on a blink of a dime for a change if if you're not in a position where you can communicate those things anymore. So whether that's a partner or a friend or a parent, a doula might be a really great person to bring into your team so that they can be really clear on, you know, can you please remind anytime anybody walks in the room, can you please remind them to ask before touching me? And, and then you've handed that task off to somebody else who can take that on while you are trying to go about the, the very big task of having a baby. So the other thing that came out of this is that a lot of people went through their birth experiences and then had questions about the birth and the way things had gone and really never got a resolution. They never found out why something happened or what the reason was that suddenly they had a, a C-section and they weren't planning on that. So if you have those questions at the end of the experience, ask them, ask them in your, you know, immediately postpartum, ask them in your six week follow up, whatever that looks like that that narrative becomes part of how you remember that birth. And having the answers and having those gaps filled in can be really therapeutic, whether they're the answers you wanted to hear or not. Having those answers, I think, could be really beneficial if, if there are gaps in your understanding of the story. 
Okay, now I'm seeing like we we need like birth debriefment, <laughs> like a birth debriefing after the birth at some point, because I think that would be super powerful for everyone. Yeah, I think everyone has a little bit of trauma. I mean, maybe not trauma, but mm, you know, it's a painful process. It's not fu- always fun and lovely um, to to experience birth. So having a little bit of that debriefing, I think would be really powerful. That's actually so a colleague of mine is a midwife and and I had a labor and delivery nurse who um, she actually was she's a coworker of mine and she delivered one of my babies with me. And then another colleague who's a midwife and they reviewed these findings with me and gave me a lot of suggestions and they were enormously helpful. So shout out to Terry Cahill Griffin and to Janelle Michelson. Thank you so much. But one of the things that the midwife had suggested was that debriefing every time within 24 hours, somebody should be in there walking through that birth story for you and really helping solidify what you just experienced and, and shaping that narrative in the, the best way it can be shaped in that formative time as you're really telling, you know, how many times do you tell that birth story in the first 48 hours after you have a baby? And the more you can have that birth story really in reality and in, in a way that's healthy and that supportive think the better off you're gonna be and I also want to make this clear too when a clinician comes in and says do you have any questions that does not count as debriefing just throw that out there as well (laughs) yeah thank you for that yeah (laughs) so so, Laura do you have maybe some better questions that they could ask to help with debriefing oh that's a good question So uh, to be honest, this is like my researcher brain thinking, but that's where I go before I even go clinical. And I think a lot of research interview questions tend to be very therapeutic, but even asking them, tell me, tell me your birth story. I'd love to hear how you interpreted that experience we just went through and, and really having them tell you how they experienced it. I think that will help them identify what questions they do have, or can help you identify areas where you hear them say something and think, oh boy, that was not at all the way that I saw that or I experienced that and and really helping to clarify any areas in their story that maybe you do have a different interpretation of. So I would think really that open-ended approach of, of getting people to share their story with you and then having that be the opportunity to be supportive in, in how they're forming that narrative. Yeah, thanks for that. I think that's a great question. So where can listeners go to learn more about supporting birthing people who are on the autism spectrum? Yeah, this is another great question. And the sad answer is that there aren't a whole lot of places out there that have a lot of resources specifically for supporting autistic people in childbirth, at least that I'm aware of. But the good news is there is a lot more research coming out on this lately on autistic experiences of pregnancy, of childbirth, of postpartum experiences, breast and chest feeding, early parenting. We're seeing more and more of these pop up just in the last year or two. So hopefully there are going to be some better resources on the horizon. But in the meantime, there are some great clinical resources to be used by by any healthcare provider who's working with neurodivergent folks and specifically autistic folks that I think could be easily applied to a birthing setting. So for example, um, ASPIRE is it's A-A-S-P-I-R-E is the Academic Autistic Spectrum Partnership in Research and Education. They've developed a really great toolkit for providers who are working with autistic patients. And just generally being more informed about neurodivergence, I think is a really great first step for clinicians. There are also great self-advocate 
self-advocacy groups out there like the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network that have resources on their website to learn more about autism, neurodivergence in general. And of course, I've got to put in another plug for Dr. Mel Hauser. She's doing amazing things at All Brains Belong. I'm constantly learning from her. And she's got a lot of great videos, training videos and other resources on her website that just are covering ways to be more accessible to implement that universal design for healthcare and really understanding the diversity of human brains in general. So that would be another resource I would highly recommend. And for our listeners who haven't checked that out, that is episode 59, uh, neuro, uh, what did we call it? Neuroinclusive. There we go. Patient care. Uh, no, Maybe. or neuro, no, I think it was neuroinclusive, <laughs> a neuroinclusive clinical practice. Either way, it's 59 with Dr. Mulhauser, and it is a fabulous <laughs> episode. And if you listen to this one and love this one, you absolutely need to check out that one too. Yeah. Oh, it's, so it's episode 59, neuroinclusive clinical practice. There you go. I looked it up. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. All right. So Dr. Lewis, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health care through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end? I just, I really want to thank both of you for, for taking on this topic and for talking to Dr. Hauser, talking to me about, I think this is just a really underexplored area that we're one in five, we're seeing a lot of patients. And I think the more we can understand neurological differences, the better care is going to be across the board. The other thing I just wanted to acknowledge is my co-researchers on this study. So Hannah Sterling, Emma Bowden, Hannah Scheibner, and Alexis Estroni, these brilliant women were undergraduate students working with me on this work, and they are now out in the world being amazing registered nurses. One of them is starting a PhD program in a couple weeks. So their time and their dedication to this work was incredible and just really grateful I've had the chance to work with all of them. And just thank you, both of you. This was a great conversation. Well, thank you. This was great. Yes. And we want to thank you, too, because we did some ner- some uh, super creeping to get you on the podcast. <laughs> we first saw that you had won the award on, I think, Twitter. And I screenshot it and sent to Stephanie and said, we need to get her on the podcast. And then I tried to, I think, DM you, but couldn't do that. So then I just Googled you and found your academic email. So <laughs> thanks for not being frightened off by our creeping skills. No, I'm glad and, you found uh, me. We, thank we you. Absolutely. Thank you for this. <laughs> yes, for this wonderful episode. <laughs> thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com.